We are in Matthew, the uh, 25th chapter, and uh, this is the final chapter that we'll be doing in the book of Matthew, uh, because now after this, then it talks about the passion, suffering, resurrection. We talk about that every year at Easter. We also skip the beginning of Matthew, all the Christmas stuff, because we also do that every year. These are kind of the bookends. Uh, ironically, those are the parts that most people talk about, and they don't talk about the middle stuff, uh, which is a shame. So we've been talking about the middle stuff. We've been in it for two years. And uh, looking at the teachings of Jesus. What did Jesus really talk about? Now, in chapter 24, and you have to remember that there weren't, the Bible wasn't written in chapters. That was added, you know, I don't know, a few hundred years ago. Somebody came along and said, let's break this up in chapters and verses. It'll be easier to follow and find stuff, which makes plenty of sense. But it wasn't written that way. Jesus is talking about the end of the world. And he's giving um, uh, insights into what it's going to be like. And it's, it's kind of creepy when you read it, but it's supposed to be creepy. It's supposed to cause us to take seriously, wow, you know. Uh, and while he says um, no one would know the day or the hour that this would happen, he said you will get a pretty good sense of the time, timing surrounding that. And uh, so we discussed a lot of that. So now he's continuing his conversation. He just, he didn't, he's not starting a new talk. He's talking to them about the end of the world and then ends with three parables. And uh, we're going to discuss these three parables over the next three weeks and then we'll be done with Matthew. So let's look at the first one. This is the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew 25 verse 1. At that time, what time? In the end time. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now this is a cultural thing from 2,000 years ago. But part of the wedding celebration is these young girls would go out and as the bridegroom comes in, they would light the way, you know, and, you know, all part of the ceremony and stuff. So these girls are all set, ready to go. They've been chosen for this wonderful little uh, deal as part of this wedding celebration. Well, Jesus said five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. Now the foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Well, then all the girls woke up, they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones quickly said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. They said, Well, no, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. Now, this is midnight. Who in the world is going to be open? It's not like they had Walmarts back then. But uh, So, uh, you know, you got to go find some. But while they were on their way to get some oil, the bridegroom arrived. And the girls who were ready uh, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Well, later, the others also came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And did not open the door. And Jesus ends the parable with this warning. He says, therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, uh, a very simple parable here that we want to take a look at. Um, of these two sets of girls. Half of them were prepared. The other half were not prepared. Now, number one, everything about both groups looks the same. They look the same. They were all dressed up ready for the wedding. Uh, they had the same lamps. They had the wicks. They had everything. From a, looking at them, there's no way you could tell that some were ready and that some were not. 
Um, you know, Jesus often spoke of the fact, and we've read it and seen it in Matthew, that his kingdom will be filled with posers, uh, imitators, people who don't really take this seriously. Um, he said that on that final day, he said, many will say to me, we don't know how many. According to this parable, it's 50%. I don't know if that's significant or not. All we know is it's a bunch who will say to him, Lord, Lord, but we did this and we went there and we, you know, la, 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 la. And he's going to say, I don't know you. And they are going to be shocked and they are going to be thrown out into outer darkness, which sounds very, very bad to me. He also talked about how the wheat and the weeds would grow together. He used that analogy. You know, there are all kinds of people in the faith community, in churches. Some of them are real wheat. Some of them are just real weedy. <laughs> Needy weedies, we call them. And, uh, and uh, it's hard to know. We don't know who is who. It's not our call to, uh, to judge who is who. Because we're not supposed to judge. Well, let me, let me clarify this judging thing. Judging thing uh, is, is, things, is one of the most misquoted verse of the Bible. And people who act really badly love to quote it. Okay? Because they love to say, you're judging me. You're not supposed to judge me. All right? Now, if you do something, like you punch someone in the face, and someone says, you're a face puncher. You can't turn around and say, you can't judge me. That's not judging. You're a face puncher. You punch the guy in the face. Okay? That's very clear. Uh, you know, if you're committing adultery, you're an adulterer. You boinking somebody that's not your spouse, you're an adulterer. I wonder how many churches use the word boinking today. <laughs> that's why we have children's church. And... Uh, <clears throat> You know, you're an adulterer. And of course, people who are adult, you could uh, you, uh, accuse them of committing adultery. What do they say? You're judging me. That's not judging you, Nimrod. You're an adulterer, for heaven's sakes. It's very, very clear. Okay? You're stealing stuff. You're a thief. What do thieves scream when you tell them they're a thief? You're judging me. <laughs> all these, all these people, I just love that one verse of the Bible. Boy, they're real scriptural, these people. You're judging me. That's not what Jesus was talking about. In fact, the Bible says specifically that we are to judge people's actions. Okay? That we are. When you do something clearly and acknowledging it and challenging about that is not judging you. That's what you're doing. The judging we're not supposed to do is to try and figure out your heart and your motives and why you do this or that. You know, you come to church and somebody didn't smile at you the right way and you get all mad and say, I it. You know, your, you know, Pastor Ross didn't welcome you properly when you came into the Appleton Church this morning. Say, you know, he's just a big fat jerk. He thinks he's really something special. Well, that's judging. Even though he does think he's something special. <laughs> we love you, Ross. Uh, so anyway, uh, it, it's not about that, that kind of judging you're not supposed to do. And people get all kind, you know, I've had people who've gotten mad, they drove by me when I was driving a car in town and waved at me and I didn't wave back. And they got mad. Well, he, he's, he doesn't care about people. Seriously, when I'm driving, I'm not paying attention to anything. Which, by the way, 
if you see me driving, don't wave at me. Get away from me because I, I'm dangerous. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I'm so like, I'm not even thinking. And my wife says, where are you going? I don't know. I don't know. Where am I? You know, I got to turn around. So uh, that's judging. That you're not supposed to do. But calling a spade a spade is not judging. If it walks like a skunk, it talks like a skunk, and it smells like a skunk, it's a skunk. I love the skunks all say, you're not supposed to judge. I'm not judging. <laughs> you smell really badly. All right? Now, both true believers and posers look the same. They feel the same. They sound the same, but they're not the same. Some are the real deal and a lot aren't. And it's sad. Now there's a day coming when God will make it very clear who are the true believers and who are the pretenders. And he said on that day many are going to be shocked. God is not interested in people who try to claim to be something that they're not. Okay, he's looking for genuineness of faith, reality of faith. That's something we try to uh, emphasize here. You know, true faith, really knowing God in your life. At some point, God tries to filter those people out that aren't the real deal. It reminds me of the, the story of Gideon in the Bible. Uh, it's a great, great account if you read this historically. Gideon was a coward. He was a, a, just a big chicken. And uh, the Midianites were the invading armies, and he's hiding in the basement. He's a little bull girl, you know, and while he's at his most humiliating moment, an angel appears to him and says, you are a mighty warrior. And, and Gideon goes, man, I'm a girly man. I'm afraid of everything, you know. And he says, no, you're a great warrior. And God starts encouraging him to rise up and lead the people against the Midianites. So he starts having this incredible transformation. And he rises and he gets the courage and he goes out and he calls the men of the nation to rise to war. We're going to go fight the Midianites. God is going to be with us. And he gathers 32,000 men to go into battle. Now, that's a lot of guys. I mean, that's impressive. You got 32,000. But they are still way outnumbered. Now, numbers back then was a big deal. Today, it's not so much a big deal. You know, it depends on the army that you're in. Uh, uh, you know, I think of our friend Greg Stubbe, who's a special forces soldier. You know, a, a special forces soldier, U.S. special forces soldier, is a force to be reckoned with. These go out, guys go out in small groups, but they are intense killing machines. Greg tells the story of how he and, uh, you know, three special forces groups, like 13 guys in a group, were up against 2,500 Taliban, you know, in this big fight. is where he got wounded and stuff like that, but they totally dominated and, and destroyed the whole lot of them because it's a big stinking deal. A U.S. soldier is a strong you know, we're talking well-trained, well-equipped technology, all the support and everything else like that. Well, that's not like that back here thousands of years ago. Back then, it was pretty much numbers. If you had an army of 100,000 against an army of 30,000, you pretty much won, okay? And it was all mano y mano. You know, whoever were the biggest dudes with the biggest clubs prevailed, you know? It was like, ooh, talk about creepy. So... He pulls together 32,000 men. It's not enough, but they trust that God is going to be with them. So they're marching, you know, 32,000. They're heading toward the enemy. And God said, you know, Gideon, 
you should tell some of the guys that are really nervous, that are they're kind of afraid, you know, that they can go home. Well, if I'm getting, I'm thinking, what? I need everybody. I don't care if you're scared or not. We'll use you for cannon fodder. I mean, whatever, you know. We'll put you out at the front, you know. Let you get killed first or something. I mean, we need everybody, right? It's a big deal. And God says, no, no, no. You got to tell the guys who are, you know, they're, they're, they're afraid to go back. Well, you know, you got 32,000. How many guys are going to admit they're afraid? I mean, it's against the man code, right? There's a man code. You get a bunch of guys together, and there's a certain amount of peer pressure among men. A group of men together will do some of the stupidest things on earth. <laughs> right? And the younger you are, the dumber they are. And they'll do stuff that is terribly dangerous. Stuff you would never do by yourself, but you do now because, well, my buddies are here, you know. They challenged me to do it. We can all do it, you know. Because it's a man thing, right? Manly men, even if you're a chicken, you'd never admit you're a chicken. It's against the man code. So Gideon gets up and says, all right, I just want to say, any of you guys who are a little nervous, you can go home. 22,000 guys leave. <laughs> what about the man code? Where are you going? Holy cow, 22,000. Admit, yeah, man, I'm scared. I'm going home. And they leave them. Now they're down to 10,000 men. I, God, I'm, I mean, the numbers are not looking good, but God said he'd be with us. We'll prevail with 10,000 men. So they're going along and God says, you know what? You need to test these guys to see who are good soldiers and who aren't good soldiers. <laughs> Seriously, dude. I just lost 22,000 with your last suggestion. <laughs> Can we just move on, you know? No, no, no. You got to test them. So there's water down there. You guys need to go out and get a drink. Now, the good soldiers, they're in enemy territory, right? You're going to stay alert. And they're going to go down and be looking and they're going to lap up the water. And, you know, they're the good soldiers. The guys who are slackers will just jump into the water and they're not paying attention. So all the guys who just, you know, get rid of them and keep the good soldiers. So 9,700 guys jump into the water. <laughs> okay, you guys all got to go. So now he's down to 300 guys. This is not good. 300 guys against this huge army. They were outnumbered with 32,000. God says, all right, now we've got the real soldiers. Because God's looking for the real deal, you see. So they go into battle. Now they win one of the most lopsided military victories in the history of mankind with 300 guys. And this is how they do it. God tells us, now you get there, these guys are all in this valley. I want you to spread the 300 guys out on the hills around. And now you guys have to be pretty spread out. There's only 300 guys, right? And I'll have a bunch of torches and stuff. We keep, keep them hidden, you know, jars and stuff like that. And on the queue, break the jars, hold up the torches, and start screaming, you know, which is a man thing. We don't, don't know what it means. It just feels good. So on cue, they all start, they break the torches. Well, the army wakes up and they see torches all around on the hills. Well, in their mind, they're imagining 
hundreds of thousands of soldiers everywhere. And they freak and they panic. And in their confusion, they start fighting each other and they kill each other. So they won, which is my kind of fighting, you know. If I'm going to war, I want everyone dead when I get there. Yeah, he's dead. Yeah, he's, now he's not, Ugh, now he's dead. All right, you know, that's, that's my kind of fighting. So good he does. So this, you know, even though it seems like it's crazy, God loves the real deal. And sometimes it's a little discouraging because we love the bigger numbers. I'm sure our church would be a lot bigger <laughs> if it weren't for me. <laughs> because I challenge people to live life. We teach the Bible. A lot of people get discouraged by that. There's, there's a lot of people that come through our church every year. We keep tabs of these numbers, you know. Big numbers, and you add, especially when you add up all the campuses. A lot of people don't stick around. At first, they come because they think it's kind of cool. The music's cool. The pastor's kind of cool. It's fun. Oh, yeah, this is this cool. But then they hear us about really talking about stuff, and it creeps them out, you know. What they're really looking for is, you know, something comfortable. But this is not a Christian club. This is not a Christian country club. This is not a Christian service group that would just talk about love and peace and stuff. No. You want that? Go join, you know the Lions Club or something. Great people. This is a church, and we're going to teach you what Jesus said. And it wasn't particularly popular then or now. So, you know, I would rather have 300 of the real deal than 32,000 posers. Life is too short, eternity is too long, and hell is too hot to play games with this stuff. Why people come to church that are posers and don't take this seriously, I don't know. I don't know that they know, to be quite frank. I think a lot of them coming to church is just fire insurance to them. You know, don't want to go to hell, you know. They come to church and it's kind of like their way of paying the premium. <laughs> Keep my fire insurance paid up. <laughs> In case, you know, I die tomorrow go to hell. I don't know what their motive is. It's not my job to judge that. I don't know. But number one, both groups look exactly the same. You can't tell. Number two, we do know that they all knew what was needed to be done. When this happened and the bridegroom comes, it wasn't like the first five went, well, what do we do? We don't know what to do. They knew what to do. And in a panic, they ran off to do it. So we know these people who are the posers really are part of the group. They hear it. They know what's supposed to be going on. They're just not doing it. They're playing their little games. I don't know what, self-delusional. But uh, they knew what to do. You know, James said, anyone who knows to do good and doesn't do it, that's a sin for them. We always strive to teach you what God says about how to live. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's not cool. Even if some people don't want to stick around. I mean, it is what it is. Um, we're pretty unequivocal. I don't think we're mean or nasty people, but I challenge you. Basic Christianity. You need to love people. You know? Even your neighbor whose dog poops in your yard. You know? Now you can talk to him about it. <laughs> Throw the poop back at him. I don't care. But you, gotta be, you still got to love the guy. Uh, you need to forgive people. It's amazing how many people get mad at me over that. There are people who won't forgive me because I told them they had to forgive people. <laughs> Which is a little crazy if you think about it. I don't have to forgive them. I'm a you know. 
some of you still, no matter my, what my challenges are, and we pray the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. Jesus said, right after that, if you don't forgive people who sin against you, God won't forgive you. What do you think happens to people who die without God forgiving their sins? That's a bad day for them. And people get mad at me, yeah, I'm not going to hell. I'm not going to forgive my ex-wife. She's a witch. Well, sometimes I use a different consonant. I'm not going to fix my, forget my ex-husband. Forget that. Some of you are here because you got really treated badly by some other church. That's why you're here. Well, we're glad you're here, but you still have to forgive those people. It's not negotiable. You have to forgive people. And if it makes you mad, so be it. We're not going to play games. You need to take your faith seriously. You actually need to pray. You need to talk to God. You need to open your mouth and talk to God. And not just when you're in here. You need to actually read the Bible. You need to build your own spiritual life. Some of you cats never, ever read the Bible. You know, a lot of you have Bibles in your home. You think it's like a good luck charm. <laughs> they do. They think it's like a lucky charm or something. They're magically delicious, you know. <laughs> keep a Bible. A Bible. Keep away the demons. They're keeping away any demons. The demons are sitting on your Bible laughing at you. You know, there's no excuse. You know, we have more access to the scriptures than any time in human history. I've got the entire Bible in multiple versions right here. And I can pick it up and read it anytime. You need to do it. What's your going to be excuse? In the Middle Ages, you might have had an excuse, but you don't have it today. But despite the availability, many people, the only time you even consider the Bible is when you come here. I would challenge you that you're probably more of a poser than the real deal. You need to get involved. You need to give of your time. You need to give of your money. And people hate that. You talk about money. And nobody gets more mad. As long as the church doesn't talk about money, they're happy. The minute you talk about money, and I hardly ever talk about money, but as soon as I do, you hear, all he ever talks about is money. Now that's all you ever hear because you're tighter than a little rat. You know, every time I penny gets in your hand and starts to weep because you're so tight. You're just like, let go. You need to give. Well, I don't want to. <laughs> Free country, do whatever you want. But there's a day coming when we'll see the real deal versus the posers. I have a funny feeling that you can almost separate the posers from the real people just looking at their giving accounts. You know. We don't publish that here. Catholics do that. I think it's smart. <laughs> Catholics always publish in their thing at the end of the year, who gave what? <laughs> I won't do it, but boy, I'm tempted. Man, oh man. Number three, Jesus warned, you need to be ready. All right? The real ones and the phony ones, you can't tell the difference. The phony ones know what to do. They just don't do it. And Jesus warned, you better be ready. Now, how do you get ready? The way you get ready is you actually live it out. You do it. Many of you know that I'm a pilot. The way that you learn about emergencies in airplanes is they put you in the airplane and they simulate the emergency. When I was first learning to fly a twin-engine airplane, they'd take you up in the air and they would kill one of the engines. All right, that was normal. You know, they'd do it on takeoff. You're starting to take off a sudden, they'd pull it, you know, one engine's gone. You know, wee And you learn how to do it so that you do it over and over and over again so that if it ever happens, you know what to do. 
You don't just read about it. You don't just say, oh yeah, I, I saw a class on that. You don't, when the engine goes out, you don't pull out the manual and say, well, what are, how do you do this again? You know, I mean, you've got to know how to handle this. This actually happened to Deb and I. We were in a twin engine airplane not about 15 years ago, over Lake Michigan, 10,000 feet. One of the engines decides to die. Got my attention. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> what did you do? Flew the plane. Did you panic? No. Why? It's not the first time it happened. First time it happened for real. But it's not the first time it actually happened. I knew what it was like. We called Milwaukee. We were near Milwaukee. Perfectly landed the plane through the clouds coming in on one engine. Got out of the plane and then I freaked. <laughs> what was that? You know, was... But at the time, no panic, no freak. No, because the training kicked in. Because you did it before. You've done it. You know, I always feel the sorriest for people who never really get a chance to live their faith. They wait until something terrible happens. And then you call us. And it's cool. You can call us at any time. A doctor tells you you got breast cancer. The doctor to something here. Terrible accident there. We'll come rushing in. We'll hold your hand. We'll cry with you. We'll hug you. We'll hold you up. But, but you can always tell the people this is the first time in their life they've ever had to really trust God for a miracle. And I always feel sorry for these people. There's not much you can do for them other than to hold them up. We'll hold them up. We'll comfort you. If you die, we'll have a great funeral. It'll be awesome. But I always feel sorry for these people because they've never had to live. You need to live this out. The way you prepare is you do it first. Some years ago, I was doing some aerial photography for a friend of mine, and it was out over the, uh, off the coast of Florida, out over the ocean. And the helicopter, before they did it, they took us to the helicopter training school. This is train you in case of an accident in a crash in water with a helicopter. It was a whole class just on that. And they train you how to do it. And the first thing that happens when a helicopter crashes into the water is it flips upside down because all the weight is on top, right? So when it hits the water, you are now upside down. It's dark with all the water rushing in. You can't see anything. And now you got to get out. And they ran us through the routines. They put us in the pool. They had this big simulated cage of being inside a helicopter. They'd strap us in and, you know, blindfold or whatever. And then they would flip you upside down and dump you in the water, see if you could get out. <laughs> it was a little creepy, you know. But before they do that, they train you in what to do. You know, one of the first things they taught, it's the seatbelt. How to handle the seatbelt. You know, sometimes you think you don't pay attention and the stewardess says, now, the way you do this, you click. I always think, you know, seriously, if you don't know how to do a seatbelt, what are you doing flying in a plane, for heaven's sakes, okay? But do you know what happens? It's not so much about how to click the seatbelt, it's how to get out of it. Do you pull to the left or do you pull to the right? And actually, the stewardesses never tell you that. That's really the main thing you need to do. They show you that oftentimes people, and the guy who's doing this, he's been to many accident sites, and people oftentimes get trapped into their car, the car goes off a bridge and falls to the water or whatever, people will drown because they can't get out of the seatbelt. But there's nothing wrong with the seatbelt. They were just pulling the wrong way. And they panic. And they freak. Because you start pulling, it won't open. What do you do? Your mind's going crazy. You just pull and you, you drown. All because you should have been pulling this way. You might want to look at that in your car on the way home. <laughs> Which way do you pull? Just that simple thing right there saves people's lives. They don't know the right way to pull. They freak and they're panicking, pulling the wrong direction. 
So they showed us, you know, you got to pull it, whatever the case was, left or right, whatever the deal was. Do you know how to open the door? Do you pull to open the door? Does it come up to open the door? That alone will kill people because they're freaking. They've just never thought it through. How does this door open again? Something you don't even think about. Uh, so they would do this. So they took us in and they flipped us upside down. And of course, quick cut out. I knew how many steps to come over. I found the door. I knew, slid this way, popped it over, swam up to the top. I was like, of course, they're watching you in case you drown, which is nice. But uh, by the time we were ready to go shooting, I was very comfortable. If we crashed, I knew exactly what to do. Not because I heard someone talk about it on a Sunday morning. Not because my mom and me, my daddy talked about it. I knew what to do because I'd done it. So you've got to live your Christianity. You've got to put the stuff into practice. This is how you can be ready. All right? So number one, it's important. We don't want to be posers. You want to be the real deal. And you can't tell. And I have a funny feeling that people are posers have no idea that they are, quite frankly. I don't, I don't think they have any idea. I don't think these, in this parable these people were shocked. They knew what to do. They just never did it. And they weren't ready. We need to be ready. The way you get ready for tragedy in your life, and I promise you, all you listening to me, Stevens Point, Appleton, everybody has challenges in life. You, are, you think you're going to escape through life and nothing's ever going to go wrong. Not very likely. There's going to be the call. There's going to be the report. There's going to be some challenge in your life. Don't be like these people who, despite coming to church all their lives, they collapse like a deck of cards because they've never truly put their faith into action. The way you prepare for challenges down the road is you do it today. You get ready today. Some of you listening to me right now, maybe you've never truly surrendered your life to God in your life. You think, well, I'll do it later or I'll think about it some more. I'll tell you what, you need to do it today. Today is the accepted time, the Bible says. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of this parable. Lord, help us to be wise and not foolish. Help us not to deceive ourselves, trick ourselves, kid ourselves into thinking we're something when we're not. And God, help us to live this stuff out. Put it into practice every day so that we're ready. Because above all, at the end of this parable, you challenge us, be ready. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bless you. Amen.